welcome to the Fat Emperor podcast. I'm your host, Ivor Cummins. Hey guys, I'm back with the fantastic Dr. Sebastian Rushworth uh, from Stockholm in Sweden, who's given us fantastic uh, blogs, articles over the past year, going through the science, simplifying it, explaining it. And uh, I'm also have this video over an Odyssey, a longer version, uh, because there have been problems with uh, this platform recently, even on material direct from government websites and statistics databases, uh, we seem to have a real challenge. So make sure you see that in the link below uh, or the description box below and uh, sign up there as well for all the information. So great to see you again, Sebastian. Hey, Ivor. Good to talk to you again. Absolutely. And we had a great discussion last time and covered a lot of stuff that turned out to be very, very accurate. It was very hard for people to predict the size of the second wave or the winter resurgence, I call it, of an endemic virus. But uh, it was bigger in the UK, England than you might expect. And it was smaller in many other countries. And we saw the Eastern European countries that never had a first epidemic. They kind of got theirs you know, in the winter resurgence of 2021. In Sweden, it was um, bigger than I thought it was going to be. I mean, uh, most of the experts back in the summer of 2020 were in agreement that uh, COVID wasn't behaving in a, a seasonal manner. And I kind of, I guess, was listening to them a bit too much because now it's clear that it's extremely seasonal. Um, so, and in Sweden, our second wave was, uh, uh, pretty much as big as the first wave. Yeah. Though I think in terms of actual excess mortality from mortality databases, it wasn't really, but in terms of the PCR badge deaths, etc., and the cases in ICU, it certainly was around the same, wasn't it? Yeah. And it was actually kind of pretty perfectly following this, uh, curve created by, uh, Edgar Hope Simpson, I guess, 50 years ago, it's uh, exactly what he would have predicted for a epidemic flu. That's what we saw with COVID here in Sweden. Yeah, exactly. And I know, and even he has some regions like Brazil and the South Tropical, and they have a much more undulating across the year waves of flu, very different than Northern Europe. And they're kind of generally seeing that too. And there's some exceptions, like South Africa was a surprise in their summer. Uh, that was unusual for, for the South Africa country. But otherwise, mostly like Peru, Chile and everyone, and the Northern Europe and American different regions, they mostly follow uh, Edgar Hope Simpson, generally. So anyway, I'm going to get on to the topic at hand, which is your new book. And thank you very much. Got it delivered there just the other day. <laughs> and I haven't got a chance. I flicked through it really quickly. It's written so clearly and it's in Swedish and English, right? Uh, yeah, it's available in both uh, both a Swedish and an English version. Uh, the publisher was mainly interested in getting a Swedish version out to try to influence uh, influence the debate here in in Sweden. But I also wanted to get an English version out because that's the that's kind of the main language I write in, and and obviously I want to reach a much bigger audience than just than just the ten million people who live in Sweden. Yeah, and that's the key is to get the message out. The beauty of this one, my wife is first class honors engineer. So, 
She's no slouch technically. And as you can imagine, living with me, she knows all the data on COVID for sure. And she read it cover to cover the other day and said it was absolutely fantastic. So her her reference even better than mine, trust me. But she called out it was perfect for lay people. It was perfect for ordinary people, not just doctors or engineers or enthusiasts or data heads, but like anyone can can approach it and understand the way everything is described. So it's a huge asset in the war, really, to to inform people properly in a proportional and balanced manner about what actually happened and what is happening. So we might go through very briefly, just as a structure, uh, each chapter um, and just give your brief or top thoughts on each one to give people a flavor of what will be coming up in the book. Um, so the first one is a history of the Swedish COVID response, and that's the first chapter. Um, yeah, so I just, uh, I mean, uh, especially outside of Sweden, people have been very interested in what's happening in Sweden, especially considering that Sweden went kind of a different route during the first, uh, I guess, first first wave. And uh, so it's it's mainly written for the the outside Sweden audience uh, who were who were curious about what happened in Sweden, who was making the decisions, uh, uh, what exactly were the restrictions in Sweden and in what ways was Sweden different from, uh, from other countries, uh, just to kind of spell it out exactly, because there's been a lot of misinformation uh, about what's been happening in Sweden. So uh i i think a lot of people were interested to hear that and, and that's kind of why i wrote that chapter yeah it's very important because the misinformation has been to be honest wall to wall for the last year because i was obviously very close to the swedish data uh, from very early on april 2020 and also very close to the actuality of the measures having had several people in sweden to report to me as well as what was being officially released so they had measures, but to me, they were very like the WHO October 2019 pandemic guidelines, which were designed for pandemics of this kind of size. Uh, they were kind of following those broad, historical, established guidelines, right? That's exactly right. Uh, while the rest of the world was kind of losing its head in uh, March and April of 2020, uh, Sweden just kind of stuck to the the traditional WHO guidelines, WHO guidelines for how to handle a pandemic. So, I mean, from that perspective, it's really Sweden that's been following the the tried and true route that everyone has agreed on before 2020 is the correct way to handle a respiratory viral pandemic, and everyone else that's been going off in uh, in strange and uh, new directions. Um, and I, I mean, Sweden, this, this was kind of true up until, up until November 2020, when the, the Swedish government started to sound much more like uh, governments in other countries. And I think what happened was that um, back in March 2020, when other countries were going into lockdown, the Swedish government uh, looked at the Swedish constitution and said, well, we can't do this. We can't uh, institute these, these severe restrictions. Um, but then, I guess, 
later on, they saw that uh, actually all these other countries, their constitutions say the same thing, that you can't institute these measures, but they still went ahead and, and, and uh, put them in place. And then the Swedish government, uh, I, I, I guess, saw this and, and uh, was also under a lot of uh, international pressure. And they, they kind of caved and started to sound much more like like uh, all the other governments and um and and so we the second wave we've actually had uh, much stricter restrictions in sweden than we had during the first wave and i don't think it's been as severe as uh, as what you've been seeing in other countries but uh, uh but it's definitely been a noticeable difference and and i think uh Swedes have been uh, very relaxed with the uh, face masks, for example, for most of the pandemic. But uh, if you're out now, you you kind of see more face masks than at any point previously in the pandemic. Uh, in in public transport, it's um, well. Sometimes I would say it's almost fifty percent of people wearing face masks, which I mean, it's not a lot compared with uh, other countries. But it just shows that uh, Sweden has been kind of uh, falling more and more in, into line with the other countries as the pandemic has gone on. Yeah, I know. And it's kind of a great sadness washes over me that Sweden actually did the right thing, followed the classic guidelines. And, and also they were following the UK guidelines and Ireland guidelines. The UK established guidelines were similar to the WHO and they allowed for an influenza type pandemic up to 750,000 real deaths in the UK. And in the end, the official figure is 130,000 and the excess mortality is around 80,000. So they actually had guidelines allowing for up to 10 times the size of this pandemic. But they, like you say, they dumped them. And basically, Bruce Aylward in China in February said all countries are going to have to do what what the Chinese did, because, look, the curve turned over. Uh, but of course, it was a classic Hope Simpson Gompertz curve. And of course, nature could turn it over itself. So that's kind of sad to hear. It's it's saddening, but it's intensely political for the last five or six months. And I can see that happening. The Swedish king came out and said, oh, my God. This is the darkest day since whenever. I mean, this kind of bizarre rhetoric. And the prime minister also was talking about the biggest challenge. And these are guys who went through the initial epidemic in April, which was the same size or actually bigger in, in excess all-cause mortality. It was bigger back in April. They'd been through it successfully. They had lower uh, death in excess death than two thirds of Europe. And I mean, they, they had literally weathered it and come out on top. And then ironically, the irony, they then start putting in all this stuff. I mean, after the horse has bolted and after the science has shown the minimal effect of the stuff, isn't it bizarre? I agree. It's weird. And by then, Ioannidis had already published his data showing that the mortality rate wasn't one or two percent it's more like 0.1 to 0.2 percent and and uh, so i mean uh, by that point uh, it was clear that this was nowhere near as bad as as uh, was feared in march and april and um i i think part of it part of what happened was because the 
the Swedish Public Health Authority was kind of given free reign to uh, to run the show during the first wave, and the, they were pretty confident uh, during the summer that there wasn't going to be a second wave, and and or that it was going to be very mild. And when the second wave ended up being as uh, uh, as big as the first wave, the I, the government, I think they kind of lost all trust in the public health authority and decided that we need to take over and, and start uh, running the show. I, I think that's part of what's happened to quite, I mean, apart from the, the in heavy extreme international pressure that's been put on the Swedish government. But the thing that I find kind of most bizarre in a, in a democracy like Sweden is that we have eight parties in, in the Swedish parliament and every single one is uh, saying the same thing on COVID. It's like they're trying to outdo each other on who can be most uh, severe in, in terms of restrictions. And I just, I don't understand how that's even possible. These eight parties never agree on anything. And now they're suddenly walking in lockstep. It's, that I find weird in a democracy that you can have uh, every single one of the part, eight parties in parliament saying the same thing. Yeah, it is a phenomenon, but it's the same most of the world over. So no one feels safe to question the narrative and politically it's being expedient. Everyone's rolling with it. And in fact, opposition parties, it suits them to up the ante and even out lockdown the existing party and say they want more safety. Because when the public are psychos from 12 months of wall-to-wall -wall coverage, making it feel like we're in something like Spanish flu, which was in a different universe, then a political party, it's suicide to look like you care less for the safety of people. So it's a phenomenon that I think some people in the world may have predicted could have happened and maybe quite delighted with that phenomenon but but here we are um it's astonishing what's happening in ireland also but similar uh, and the uk as well with labor and and the tory parties so quite shocking but anyway i'll go on uh, you give uh, a couple of chapters on how to understand scientific studies and a quick primer on statistics and i think that's super and i scan through them they're so easy to read because the vast majority of people now i often say to my wife it's incredible the percentage of people now who are effectively enumerate. So they can add and subtract basic figures. Some can even work out percentages. But generally, the vast majority, it appears to me, of people have lost the ability uh, for any kind of slightly complicated statistics, risk ratios, anything like that. It's astonishing. What do you think? Uh, well, I mean, we live in a society where we're awash in uh, misinformation. So in that situation, everyone should uh, get some serious statistical training and, and training in, uh, in uh, scientific method and in, in, uh, in uh, reading and understanding uh, what information is, where it's coming from, who the sender is, what their motives are. I mean, it's kind of a basic to being able to function as an independent citizen in a 
in a modern democracy where we're all kind of drowning in 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 uh, in information and misinformation and disinformation and 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 I mean most people haven't uh, haven't or I, I guess no one's been taught that in school. If people have this ability, it's usually because they're self-taught. I mean, even in in medical school or in in uh, scientific training programs, people aren't really learning these things. Maybe, maybe people who are studying statistics uh, have the necessary competence, but uh, most people do not have the competence to be able to understand uh, uh, when they're being lied to or when they're being duped. So um, I wanted to make that a big part of the book, just going through how do you read statistics? How do you understand uh, uh, statistics? Because often we're being presented with absolute numbers that are completely taken out of perspective and, and, uh, and that just create this completely... Um, warped view and and i mean the the case numbers for covid are one good example the the death numbers for covid are another good example they're uh, they're numbers that are taken out of perspective and that don't say anything in themselves but but they sound bad when you say thousands of people are dead that sounds bad but uh, i mean what you really need to know is how many more people are dead than you would normally have expected and and uh, and, uh, and and the these numbers have uh, have continually continuously not been put in any kind of perspective. The same with the case numbers. I mean, uh, what matters? Uh, I mean, if we're going to listen to there are problems with the PCR tests, but if we're going to use them, we should at least be putting the numbers in perspective, looking at the proportion of cases that. Uh, that are positive, not just the absolute numbers, because in most countries, especially here in Sweden, the 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 testing has increased continuously throughout the pandemic. We're testing more now than we ever were at any point previously. We're testing more than 10 times as many people as we were during the first wave. And obviously, we're going to have higher case numbers. And it's, it's, an, it's kind of a nonsense statistic. What you need is the proportion of cases that are positive and you get a very different picture of the pandemic when you do that. And, and so I, with the book, I just kind of wanted to show people how, how you really read and understand statistics if you want to get a true understanding of reality. And, and, and also, I mean, the media are constantly referring to scientific studies uh, and and it's clear that the journalists who write the articles have have no uh, competence when it comes to actually reading and understanding what the studies are actually saying. So a big part of the book is kind of explaining how do you go through and read and analyze the scientific study. What conclusions can you draw? What can't you draw? Um, what what uh, does a how do you understand what uh, an observational study is telling you compared with a randomized control trial? And I think, I mean, these are basic skills that everyone should have if they want to be able to function in, uh, in modern society, but most people don't have them. So, so I, I kind of try to teach that basically. Excellent. Well, you know what? I'd say that, uh, for the modest price of the book, those few chapters alone, giving that kind of education in a very approachable way, it's worth it, guys. So 
uh, never mind the rest, which really gets all the truth out. I'll just pick up on the two sections there, Sebastian. On the first one about the statistics, I noticed recently a load of people asked me a few weeks ago about Sweden. And they said, but the cases are going up. The cases are going up. It's not ended the second wave. It's going up. And I said, yeah, but look at the positivity rate. So I just showed them very quickly from Worldometer that the cases were going up, right? Uh, but the tests number was also going up. And the positivity, the percentage that were positive, was flat. And the ICU was flat, right? And the mortality had fallen away. So I said, if you just look at those few figures, you can say, oh, so nothing really is happening. It's just flat. Maybe it's going to fall coming into the spring now. And that's it for another whole summer. But the media were all saying, Sweden's rising, Sweden's rising, to your point. And the other thing on the scientific method and, and studies, if people only understood one thing about associational studies, and Professor Karl Popper uh, was amazing in clarifying the black swan, the fundamental, you know, proof is asymmetrical. So if you've got a hypothesis that, say, lockdowns reduce death a lot, well, you can have 10, 15 countries, 20 countries where you have lockdowns and the death appears to reduce following them. But you only need one country that did not do a lockdown where the deaths behave similarly. And it disproves the hypothesis. So the negative, a piece of negative evidence, i.e. a black swan, kills the hypothesis. But you can have 20 or 30 white swans positive evidence they don't prove it at all and people sadly don't even understand that single fundamental thing so when we see texas and florida and we see sweden even during the first epidemic all these negative proofs they all on their own can kind of kill it uh, but no one knows this they just give you a positive proof from another country and say oh, well look it worked there well no that's an association Anyway, we yeah, yeah, that's something I feel very strongly about from my cholesterol and fat days and you know all that. But anyway, so that's exactly right. And if you cherry pick data, you can prove anything you want. You can always find something to support what you're saying somewhere. And I mean that's why, like you say, the I mean science, real science isn't done by finding things that support what you're saying. Real science is done by looking and trying to find things that that go against what you're saying, that disprove what you're saying. Because yeah. you can find a thousand things that prove it, but it's enough to find one thing that disproves it and your whole hypothesis is dead. Exactly. And funny people listening, I spent 20 years plus as a complex problem solver leading teams. I mean, big, big interactional problems in corporate. And that was always my push, always trying to find something that disproved my hypothesis on a major issue, because that's gold. If you find a negative proof, you know it's real, it kills the hypothesis, and you got to think, what are we missing, and make a new hypothesis. But a lot of the engineers, even good guys and gals, they still go and they do an experiment to prove what they suspect, their hypothesis, and I have to keep telling them. You've got to do the experiment in such a way you give ample opportunity to disprove the hypothesis. That's where the gold is. And here we are, we have idiots saying to me, I'm cherry picking on Florida or Texas or Sweden or and all these comparisons or Croatia, you know, or all these negative proofs. And each of them on their own is a killer. And people say I'm cherry picking, but they actually cherry pick some irrelevant 
you know, affirmative country. Oh, it did one and it worked out. So it's it's bizarre and absurd and, and scary and, and depressing all at once. But there, this is where we are. Next couple of chapters, how deadly is COVID-19? And then there's one on long COVID, which at this stage, I think we'll skip long COVID somewhat because there's no published paper lending credence that it's beyond the viral infections, like even influenza and many others that can cause long-term for several months effects. This this does not have any bearing on, on lockdowns or implementation of non-pharmaceutical methods that have caused such catastrophe. Uh, the long COVID would never be used in in a sane world to justify any of that. Only mortality can. So for me, long COVID, it's a separate thing completely, and it bears no relation to what we need to be doing on this epidemic. And there's, I mean, there's still no good evidence to show that uh, long COVID is uh, is a real new condition. Uh, I mean, uh, and the longitudinal studies that have been done of following people who have symptomatic COVID show that 98% are fully recovered within three months, and the vast majority are fully recovered within a few weeks. So, I mean, this is a, a small minority that think that are saying that they still have symptoms several months out. Um, and it, there's still no good evidence to show exactly what it is or to show that it's it's something distinct from, from for example, post-viral syndrome, which we've known about for years or, or, or just the normal kind of, uh, uh, I, I mean, that long recovery period that people who have had a severe disease have, regardless of what the cause of that severe disease is. Um, I mean, a, a very large proportion of people treated in ICUs, for example, have uh, long-term symptoms afterwards. And it's not something that's new for COVID. That's, that's uh, always been the case. Yeah, and that's essentially it. And recently, a study team got very irate on Twitter and it was a very substantial study team that in good faith were looking into long COVID. Uh, I forget the name, but very official. And they became extremely frustrated because the journals or the main journal they were going to be publishing in kept pushing back on them and, and was not interested and was sending them in circles. And the reason they just they realized was they found that over 50% of their long COVID people were negative in antibody and negative in testing when they dug into their history and it was questionable whether they even had COVID. So imagine 50-50, 50 turn out that they may not have even had COVID, but they still are, they were feeling these symptoms. So the journal wasn't interested because it didn't fit the narrative. So they decided to, yeah. I think there is a big risk that long COVID is just going to become the new, the new thing that people like to blame uh, unclear symptoms on. People want an uh, organic biological explanation for, for, for symptoms. It, it's, I mean, it, it's hard for people to accept that, uh, that symptoms are often uh, uh, caused by psychological issues. They want to find a, a physical cause or, and it's hard for people. Uh, people want a diagnosis. And I think there is a, there is a high probability that this is going to become the, the next uh, electricity allergy or the next uh, amalgam poisoning, uh, the, the next kind of thing that, that people are 
convinced they have, but but that there really is no scientific proof for, and that the I, that's just uh, my my guess. Maybe someone will eventually show that uh, long COVID is a distinct entity, but it hasn't been shown yet. And and I think there is a significant probability that no one will ever be able to show that. Yeah, I would guess as much. And Professor Bita Stadler, Emeritus Professor of Immunology, he said exactly the same thing early last summer when I interviewed him. And that was well before a lot of the long COVID stuff came out. He said, no way. And, oh, sorry. The autoplay started. I'm going to roll from there. Uh, just give me a second. Okay, I'm going to roll from there. Uh, I'll say it again, actually. I'll start again. Well, yeah, this is it, uh, Sebastian. And Professor Bita Stadler said the exact same thing last summer. And he went through the details with me. So Emeritus Professor of Immunology, the vaccine pope of Europe, right? Uh, he'd know. And he said it happens with influenza as well. And I know people who've had, you know, after a bad flu bout, few years ago uh six eight weeks later they said to me they're still drained and tired and and you know what's wrong with them if they got cancer and i said no no it happens this is a couple of years ago i just said no this happens when your immune system deals with a kind of major hit sometimes in people you have lethargy and issues for a long time there's nothing special and uh professor stadler said he thinks it'll be the new yuppie flu or me if you remember 20 years ago that huge fuss around the world about you know chronic tiredness yuppie flu i'm not sure whatever happened to it uh but he said yeah exactly what you said sebastian it'll become probably a belief system now like all the others uh so what we missed how deadly is covid19 and i know i i i got removed i got kicked off linkedin for a few weeks for four different things and one of them <laughs> was your post just talking about how deadly was it so that there you go but roughly at a high level, you know, as you said, Ioannidis has done the WHO published figures. We know the figures for the whole world of actual deaths after over a year and multiple seasons of spread of a high R virus. So we can talk about those figures. What was the actual death rate? And uh, that's, yeah, I think we can talk about that. Yeah. And then, I mean, it's, it's not uh, controversial and, and, uh, it's very clear if you look at the the overall number of people who have died on the planet that it's uh, that covid is in line with the 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 1957 and 1968 flu pandemics it's uh, it appears like it's it's in the same ballpark and and uh, the the comparison with the spanish flu is insane the spanish flu is uh, it's many many times uh, deadlier than covid and and i i just uh, i kind of cringe every time i hear someone say that covid is the worst pandemic in in a hundred years because <laughs> there is like uh well we had a pandemic in 1957 that was just as bad we had one in 1968 that was just as bad and you don't even know about them that's how bad they were they're completely forgotten uh, I mean that that shows the level of this pandemic, and um, well, in the in the book I talk about Yoannidis, and, and 
John Ioannidis, he's, a, for people who don't know, he's a professor at uh, Stanford University. I think he's the, the, the researcher with the most citations in, in the world. He's, I, he, this is one of the most respected scientists in the world. And uh, very early on, he kind of noticed that the, there's something that isn't right here. I'm going to dig into it. And, and he started analyzing antibody data and and he came to the conclusion that the mortality rate for covid is around 0.2 percent the overall one in 500 people die and and it's it's uh it's uh higher for people over the age of 80 much higher and and for people under the age of 70 it's much much lower it's very extremely low and um, Ioannidis has been uh, mercilessly attacked over this and people have been trying to uh, make him out as some kind of crank, which is, uh, I mean, hilarious considering that before the year 2020, he was considered one of the most respected scientists in the world. Um, he actually updated his numbers uh, a few months back and came to the conclusion that actually COVID's a little bit less deadly than he was saying earlier. Uh, he now puts the global mortality rate at uh, around 0.15%. So with even more data, it's clear that COVID is even less deadly than, than we initially believed. Yeah, and that's just a reality. And again, that's uncensorable. But when I think of the abuse that Ioannidis and others got and the Barrington Declaration professors and everyone, uh, Nick Hudson from South Africa, uh, the Panda organization, had a great tweet yesterday. And he said, we have learned from history that it's never the truth um, or it is never the lies which are censored. And that's just a general thing. It's always an uncomfortable truth or a problem for, say, a regime, a fact getting out that's dangerous. That's always what's censored or censured or attacked. You know, it's ironic, isn't it? But 0.15 Ioannidis uh, says now, and the WHO uh, mounted his paper peer-reviewed on their website last October so there's nothing censorable about what we're saying and he's reduced it from 0.23 I think to 0.15 and for people 0.15 is 1,500 people per million 1,500 sounds like a lot but it's per million so it's one in 700 or so and the reality is right now if we think of numbers per million in the world, the COVID deaths on Worldometer after a year plus of spread and multiple seasons and everything you've seen, the world figure is around 370 per million after all this time across the whole world. And even the worst hit countries like America in excess mortality are around 1,300 per million. And America is a disaster for metabolic health and it would have had a lot of denial of care related to the interventions and lockdowns would have caused a problem with mortality. But even with all that included, it's 1300 per million, which is still less than Ioannidis' estimate. And over half of Europe has near zero per million, like of a couple of hundred tiny figures or oh, more than half the countries in Europe approximately so people just don't like we said enumerate they don't know how to just look at the data and it's a sad thing 
Um, hopefully coming out of this, we'll have more people who are realizing something has gone wrong in the world catastrophically and, and may begin to show leadership to help others understand, uh, of which this book, of course, <laughs> is a huge proponent. So we'll flick through um, and we'll look at a couple of the other chapters because you covered all of the salient headings, no question about it, all the key questions. Um, how accurate are the COVID tests? I'm not sure we need to go down that rabbit hole so much, um, but maybe we'll have a quick word on it in terms of those PCR tests. Um, well, I mean, this is, I guess this is kind of the most technical, most uh, mm. complicated chapter. And uh, I, I guess my, my key message, I have two key messages. The one is that no one really knows how accurate the, the PCR tests are. And, and that makes it kind of hard to um, use that as the main thing we're uh, basing decisions on. And um, the other is that the, the, the accuracy of the tests varies a lot depending on how prevalent the disease is in the population. So you can have a, a situation where the tests are very accurate if a lot of people have COVID but then as, as less and less people have COVID, the, the less accurate the tests are going to become. And, and, uh, and, and I don't think people understand this, that the accuracy of the tests actually varies over time. And that this, makes, uh, this in itself is something that kind of makes comparisons hard and makes trusting the, trusting the tests hard. Yeah, and that's a. I, I was using the word case-demic during last summer, and sadly, my my enemies tried to accuse me in the winter resurgence. You're saying it was a case-demic. Well, it was during the summer when the prevalence was low. There were huge cases being quoted often, and there were no deaths or ICU. That was a case-demic where you had all the fear and the propaganda, but nothing was really happening. But then in the winter resurgence, to your point, in Ireland and England and many places, um, the virus did trigger and you now you had high cases, but you also had high ICU and you had mortality. And that's not a case-demic because the PCR is now reflecting pretty well what's happening. But during a summer, I think the best example, Professor Michael Levitt this morning tweeted to me and said, well, Ivor, this looks like a case-demic. And it was Germany right now. And Germany is hyped up, locked down, and they're talking about cases and cases and cases. But the mortality in Germany over the past several weeks against the normal mortality daily in the country, the mortality has gone down, down, down to 11% below normal mortality. There's around 11% fewer people dying per day than would normally be dying in Germany at this time of year. So there's a case-demic when you're screeching about cases and you've actually got much lower mortality than you should have. I mean, I can show the graph afterwards in the background with, with this podcast, but it's just quite stunning. And no one knows, no one in the street, no, no people know that that's, a, that's happening. That's a fact. That's a fact. But no one knows it. So it's very, very depressing, I might say. Uh, lockdown... It's the exact same situation here in Sweden that um, if you just look at overall mortality, not uh, COVID-specific mortality, there is nothing going on at the moment. And it, there hasn't been for months. 
it's it's been kind of at the normal level or below the normal level but uh, and and even if you look at covid specific deaths they've been they've been low continuously for almost two months now um but I, I mean that's not where the focus is the focus is on the cases which are higher and higher and rising continuously but uh, uh, again this this is because we're just uh, testing more and more and more people and and uh, if you um, if you like we discussed before if you look at the the share of the tests that are positive you see that they were stable for a long time at the low level, much lower than in, in the winter during the, the big winter peak. And now the last couple of weeks, they've been rising up a little bit, but, but, uh, but they're still much lower than they were in, in the winter. But that isn't, how the, that isn't how it's portrayed because all people are presented with are the absolute numbers of cases, which, which continuously keep rising because we're constantly testing more and more people. Yeah, it's a killer. And that ploy has been used since the start and especially during the summer in Europe last year. And that's the way it is. You know, you do a crucial chapter, uh, does lockdown prevent COVID deaths? Now, and I will say yesterday, I put up a video which only had Irish government sources, statistics office and RIP, the deaths register of funerals uh, data. And I referred to my big selection of papers that discuss the effectiveness of lockdown. But otherwise, there was nothing in that video. But I don't think people liked it. And uh, it got taken down. So maybe we can, we can talk about the lockdown and its effectiveness, just in terms of maybe musing on all the examples, where, as we said, per Professor Karl Popper, all the examples where it fell short of delivering a result. So in the book, I, I talk about the two observational studies that have been done that have been kind of big epidemiological studies looking at, uh, looking at a lot of different countries and trying to see, is there a discernible pattern here? Can we see that if, uh, is there a connection between the, the severity of restrictions and, and the number of people who die of COVID over the following months? And, and the, and, and both studies found there there is no correlation at all. And uh, and the things they do find have a correlation or or age, which, which uh, I mean we know that age is a big risk factor, and obesity. Those are the two big risk factors. And and the the protective factors they find are the main protective factor is the climate. Um, and, and I mean we can discuss or people can discuss why they think that is, but it's clear that uh, warm, sunny climates get hit hard, less hard by COVID. And um, so those are kind of the patterns that have been seen, but there is no signal anywhere that, uh, that lockdowns in themselves have any impact on the, the, the proportion of people who die of COVID over, over the following months. Yeah, and I think that's fair to say, and our masters who have decided we can no longer speak freely um, would even allow that, just observing and musing on the science 
Um, for me, some of the examples that are most interesting because I'm an expert problem solver. And like I say, I've spent 25 years disproving my own hypothesis. So no one can accuse me of being harsh on other people's. I do it mostly on my own. So I'm interested by Florida, which dropped all measures on 25th of September in the middle of a lot of viral activity. It's not like it was gone and they dropped it and it stayed gone. They had a lot going on. And for eight weeks afterwards, remember, we just wait two weeks. Well, eight weeks afterwards, nothing changed. And then they went up in the, the seasonal type pattern. But then all the similar states went up as bad or worse. So Florida is what I would say an exemplar. But we've also got Croatia and regions within Croatia. When there was an earthquake, they dropped all measures and the curve matched from that whole region with all the people flooding in and, and relief people uh, matched all the other regions. Um, and we have Sweden as well when compared fairly to other countries uh, with hugely different interventions. So we could go on and on, but I think the key point is popper. That if a hypothesis is there that a certain intervention will lower something like mortality, you only need one example, a good one, not, not, a, not a weak evidence, but a very solid piece of evidence. You only need one. And we have so many. But I guess it's kind of an ideology now, right? It's a religion. The harms of lockdown, you have a chapter on. And that's something I feel strongly about uh, because, you know, I have five children and I'm just that type of person. I spent the last eight years traveling the worldwide uh, speaking on preventing type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular death, and, you know, type 3 diabetes, Alzheimer's. So I fought for eight years all over the world, as it happens, to prevent modern population chronic disease. So I have a lot more credentials than 99.9999% of the people on the other side who are claiming they're interested in saving lives. Um, so I'm interested in this, the harms of lockdown. This is one that's driven me insane since last April 2020. Um, and, and I mean, the, the harms are so innumerable that it's, it's kind of hard to uh, go over them all. And, and I mean, people who have been skeptical of lockdown have, uh, have been attacked as only caring about the economy and, and only caring about money and and things like that which i mean, which i think is absurd because i mean even if you ignore that part and and just look at deaths and 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 health outcomes it, it's clear that lockdowns do a lot of harm you don't need to bring the economy into it and 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 i mean i'm a i'm a doctor i'm not an economist so in my book, when I talk about the harms, I, I don't talk about the economic issues at all. I talk about uh, uh, kind of more public health issues. Um, and, and, I mean, there are multiple aspects. There's the fear mongering in itself, and which, uh, which has made people more afraid to seek help when they have a health issue. And that has has uh, I re probably resulted in a, quite a large number of unnecessary deaths from from heart attacks and strokes uh, and uh, things like that. And um, then there's the issue of school closures and and what I mean, what I would really have liked to see from governments 
is a kind of a cost-benefit analysis. And I don't mean an economic cost-benefit analysis. I mean a, a, a public health cost-benefit analysis. What, what happens when we take children out of school? Uh, how many lives from COVID deaths do we think uh, we're saving? And, and, uh, and what do we think the psychological harms to children are or, or educational harms to children are? And there was a, a study published in, I think it was the Journal of the American Medical Association um, that kind of tried to quantify the harms to children of being taken out of school. And um, I mean, this is kind of based on modeling because what they wanted to do was, uh, we know that uh, a certain number of people are dying of COVID and they wanted to get, uh, they wanted to get a situation where they're comparing apples with apples. So how do you get taking children out of school? Uh, how do you translate that into deaths? And so they did some kind of, kind of modeling mumbo jumbo and, uh, and, and, and try to estimate, well, how many years of life are lost from, uh, from uh, poorer educational achievement. And, and, and they came, they came to the conclusion that something, I think it was something like uh, uh, 6 million years of uh, life were lost due to school closures in the US during the first wave, just due to taking children out of school. And I mean, obviously you can kind of question these numbers because they're, they're based on, on modeling and, and you can kind of get whatever numbers, I mean, uh, modeling is highly dependent on what, uh, what numbers you feed in and what variables you use in the model. Just, just like we've seen with the Neil Ferguson's model that predicted uh, a hugely greater number of COVID deaths than was actually seen. Um, but I, I think the point they were trying to make was sound anyway, that it's, it's harmful to children to be taken out of school. And it's, it's uh, kind of immoral to not even consider this aspect. The, the problem is that political decision makers, when they've been making decisions in relation to COVID, the only thing they've been looking at is COVID deaths. They haven't been looking at any of the collateral effects. And, and to me, that's bizarre. I mean, how can you make a good, good decision? It's the only thing that matters to our society, COVID deaths. Are there no other factors? It, nothing else matters. Heart attacks, cancer deaths, children's uh, health, people's psychological health, suicides. The, it's, uh, I, I, I find it stunning that uh, no government anywhere appears to be doing these kinds of cost-benefit analyses when they're making their decisions. It, all, all decisions relating to lockdown appear to have been driven entirely by populism because, uh, well, like we already discussed, there's no evidence that any of these measures have any measurable impact at all and uh, yeah it, it's kind of just bizarre the the whole situation yeah it's it's astonishing and it's twilight zone for me for the last year i was kind of on board in end of march april i could understand the knee-jerk fear the lack of cost benefit because it was only a few weeks to flatten the curve but what people don't seem to realize almost people are like goldfish a few weeks to flatten the curve and protect the hospitals from overload is now over a year and it's nothing to do for most of that period with overloaded hospitals and yet here we are a full year of it and it ain't ending 
Uh, Public Health England did a report, I think, last June, and they looked at around probably 200,000 life years lost from cancer and depression and many other impacts of lockdown. So already they're looking at life years lost, not dissimilar from the supposed ones that were saved. But no one looked at that cost-benefit report. It was published. No one cared because all the media, along with the politicians, only care about one thing, COVID. And it's just astonishing that we've thrown the children under the bus. I mean, the way you judge a society is, in fairness, you know, how do they look after their aged and their susceptible? So that's a COVID problem. But you really judge a society about how it values its children. And our societies have been absolutely criminally negligent in that respect, not even measuring it, not even trying to quantify it, literally no one caring and running after measures which are not even supported, shall we say, by science and empirical data at the exclusion of any care for the whole of society and the children. So it's astonishing. Suicides anecdotally in Ireland, uh, we don't have the figures because the coroner's court, they won't be declared for a year afterwards at least. But the anecdotal stories of suicides from small business owners and young people are, are hair-raising. Quite, quite tragic. And the life years lost there is probably the same as around 100 aged COVID deaths for people who are already multiply comorbid with a very low quality of life. Uh, but but like you say, no one cares about the cost-benefit. It, it's, uh, it's shameful, uh, shameful part of the world's history. Um, we won't really get into the V word, I think, because I've sensed lately uh, a very George Orwell-type environment. So maybe we're better off not even going to the V word. What do you think? Sure, let's not talk about it. Um, um, I mean, uh, I just do kind of a technical... Uh, analysis uh, of what the what the scientific what the trials show and 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 uh, I I don't think it's that uh, controversial really but uh, it's probably better to avoid that topic uh, at the moment. Yeah, it's it's sad that we are here. It's talking like this, but I suppose it's reality. I suppose the French resistance, who are on the right side of history, they had to be very careful too you know, during the war. So I, I think I'm a big World War II buff. I mean, big time. And I see so many parallels here. That's just one of them. But uh, every aspect of this has parallels, you know, the propagandizing, uh, the small minority in many scenarios who actually have things correct, but are suppressed and undermined because of the greater narrative and, and all those things. But yeah, we let one other chapter, though, why did the world react so hysterically to COVID? And again, I'll just say we've skipped a few chapters here. Each is only around 10 or 12 pages. So it's parsed out beautifully. Uh, and even, you know, your your brother who's an accountant who isn't into science or stuff at all, or, you know, your electrician uh, uncle or whatever, anyone can approach this book. And that's why I think it's so important. But we will finish on why did the world react so hysterically and that's something that astonishes me to this day. Every day I pinch myself many times. And I've said this before to people. Several times a day, every day for the last year, 
because I'm top of my field in problem solving data and myriad other fields, and that's been my career. Every day, I for a nanosecond think, I imagined this because it can't possibly be happening, what we've seen for the last year. And when in another nanosecond, my conscious brain steps in and said, no, Ivor, it is happening. And I realized with a slight feeling of depression, I realized it is actually happening. Now, the fascinating thing is that that's every day for nearly a full year now. And my subconscious brain, my processor still does it to me. It pops in a thought, this isn't real. Because it is unreal. It's just insane what's happening. I mean, so here I'm having a moment again, but I'm going to control myself. So that last chapter, how did the world completely lose the plot from Bruce Aylward in February in China for the WHO pointing at a single graph, a single observation, not even a study, and saying, look, the lockdowns they did made that curve turn when we know it's a natural gumperts that happened for millions of years. From that point right through to now, how, why? Um, well, so this chapter is uh, really more speculative. In, in the other chapters I'm discussing, this is what kind of the hard science and the statistics show, whereas here I'm just kind of, I'm speculating because just like you, I've been amazed at what's happening and kind of having trouble putting 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 it all together i don't understand how how intelligent people can can uh, look at these this data and draw such ludicrous uh, conclusions i, I mean uh, uh, most of the medical establishment is kind of 100% on board with with what the governments are doing and and uh, and, and I, I just find it hard to understand how they can look at this data and draw these uh, absurd conclusions. So, um, but uh, I guess, I, I mean, like, I think uh, this is kind of a collective, uh, an episode of collective mass hysteria. I think that's how historians are gonna look at it in a hundred years. Um, and I think, uh, I think it kind of has a lot to do with the way our mass media is constructed and the way our social media is constructed. And, and, um, and, and I think it also has a lot to do with the fact that this pandemic started in China and that China is a, a totalitarian dictatorship. And, uh, and uh, I mean, if, uh, if COVID had started in Sweden, it, Sweden wouldn't have responded with a lockdown. They would have uh, responded with the, well, like they did, the traditional WHO measures. And uh, then when it spread to other countries, I think they would have followed that lead. But now it started in China and, um, and uh, kind of social media and mass media spread this uh, image of a of a massively deadly pandemic and i mean china was complicit and 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 actively pushing this image too with showing people dead in the street and showing people kind of in hazmat suits going around spraying uh, disinfectant over everything and so i mean they were actively pushing this this image and then they did this lockdown or they 
purported to do this lockdown. They showed the uh, they showed images of kind of doors to apartment complexes being welded shut. And, and, and then China said, look, it worked. We don't have any COVID anymore. It's gone. And, and uh, I, I think uh, this kind of set the stage where there was mass panic and people were sitting in their own little filter bubbles, just uh, having this uh, repeated continuously and strengthened in their minds. And they saw that China was saying that they did that they got rid of COVID in a month with a hard lockdown, and and um, and I think politicians saw it and they panicked and and they decided to push through measures and and populations saw it and they panicked even more and they demanded even harder restrictions and it kind of became a a negative spiral where things just got more and more extreme, even even as it became clear that. Uh, that this wasn't working but now i mean the way i see it uh, people have uh, they've dug themselves in so hard now that there's really no getting out of it the yeah. uh, and i think that's kind of why they've become so obsessed with the vaccines and with with the idea that the the entire world's population needs to be Oh, I used the V word now. I guess we're going to be censored. <laughs> uh, well, the, I mean, I think that's why, because this has became like the the magic bullet that can end the end this situation that they've created, and 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 with, without them ever having to admit that they overreacted uh, to. Uh, to a viral pandemic that was that was in nowhere near as bad as the image they had been presenting and that's kind of my analysis i know you have your own analysis of what's going on and um but that that's kind of what i'm discussing in the book that that that's my attempt to kind of make sense of what's what's been happening over the last year yeah, no, and that's very well articulated. I, I broadly agree. I, I see it as kind of two engines, a big engine that's got a lot of power causing enormous damage. Um, and that is what you described, the self-reinforcing feedback loops that are catastrophic. So it's like an engine that's got a problem. And if it gets a little hot, it runs a little faster. And when it runs a little faster, it gets a little hotter. When it gets a little hotter, it runs a little faster. So that's the people and the fear and propaganda. They begin to demand more measures, and then the government give them more. And then there's a perception of an even bigger issue because there's masks on everyone and we're locked down. And then they put in more, and then they stop travel. And then everyone thinks, oh, my God, we're all going to die. And the engine runs away and explodes itself. And that's what they've done. They've exploded the economy, society, our freedoms, you know, collateral damage. That, that's the big engine. But I think there's a smaller engine that has a controlling effect on that big engine. And I think the smaller engine, but very powerful, are just a lot of international bodies of huge influence with conflicts of interest, where sadly, all of these international bodies and their household names, some of them, others not so much, they're all connected to each other and it's in all their interests at every turn that more lockdowns and more masks is just good for their interests. And there's many of these organizations. So it's not a conspiracy theory. 
It's just we've kind of handed the keys to a lot of influential, powerful organizations where the more of this goes on, the better. And if this thing fades away, it means it's not it's not good. So everyone all along this chain, the media, the politicians, the organizations I mentioned, yada, 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 they're all benefiting more with more of this pandemic stuff. And therefore, you've got the, that's the biggest loop of all. It's, it's interest. It's interests. So there we have it. Um, I might do a root cause diagram, which I've done my, my whole career, which, which shows all the feedback loops and all the different players, and maybe the big engine we talked about and the smaller engine. And I might do a, a full root cause diagram showing actually the psychology, etc., cetera, uh, of how, how this happened and include everything. But no doubt, it'll be censored, of course. <laughs> So here, thanks a lot, Sebastian. That was superb to go through that. And here's the book. The link's down below. Uh, and make sure you get it. Or or I think, can you order it? Is it on Amazon so people can order and send it direct to a relation or a, a friend? It's on Amazon. Or... Originally, Amazon uh, refused to sell it because I guess they thought the content was what? too controversial. But uh, uh, after about a week, they changed their mind and decided... Uh, so I don't know exactly what happened at Amazon, but uh, something some, something happened. <laughs> yeah, and and isn't that so? Because I I have I have flicked through because I as you know I'm working around the clock. My wife read the whole thing, and I checked her because she loved it. And uh, I said, "What do you think Amazon's stopping that even for a week?" And she just well, I won't repeat what she said. She she had a temper tantrum, shall we say? Uh, but she's it's just outrageous. Because not a single thing. I mean, imagine we live in an age, hundreds of years since the last book burning and banning of books. You know, banning of books has not been done, even for some pretty shocking books. Because we live in a Western democratic society, you know, a liberal society where freedom is paramount, a freedom of expression. So we allow a lot except for direct hate speech and inciting violence. And now, in one year, we can actually kind of censor a book from a medical doctor that has nothing in it inciting anything but talking about science. So just for people to internalize that as a final point, you know, or like my video I put out yesterday and it was gone, that only went through government statistic sources referenced. You know, people need to realize how profoundly dangerous this thing has become and and if more people internalize that maybe we can start getting ourselves out of as you described it sebastian this enormous hole we've dug ourselves into so thanks a lot again sebastian and we'll circle back again in a while and and see how far the madness continues yet Thanks, man. And I get over to Sweden as well. I've a bit of business there when things ease off with all this hotel quarantine madness. Um, so we get to meet up in person, I'm sure of it. Thanks a lot, man. Good luck. Till next time. Bye. Okay, I think we navigated that pretty well. What do you think? It's hard to know.
we'll see. I I think it's worth risking. Um, yeah, I think we navigated it carefully to make the points, but not outrightly saying the who are wrong. We're just kind of questioning. Yeah, it's inter It's terrible times, isn't it, Sebastian? Shocking. Crazy. Well, hopefully this will get a boost. And you know what? I'm on now in five minutes or so with a guy in the US. I don't know how big his platform is. But as I'm here, we're going to be talking Corona and he's going to release a podcast video, I think. Um, you know, I'll have this to hold up now and say, guys, is America worldwide? It's available or? Oh, wow. Excellent. Well, that's what I'll do. I'll hold it up and I'll say, listen, guys, we're going to have a movie coming out and uh, we'll probably have a book after it. But long before that, right now, everything's in this. And it's probably not too expensive, is it, as a paperback? I don't think so. Like $18 or something like that. Uh, yeah. Not, and as a, I think as a Kindle book, it's like $10 or something like that. Well, that's it. And it's amenable because we did our big tome with all its recipes in a Kindle, but the, but a book like myself and Dr. Gerber's, like Kindle's not really that good. Uh, but a book like this, Kindle is perfect mm. because it's it's no diagrams per se or recipes or anything. And it's, it's a, yeah, it's perfect for that. Okay, I better get ready for this other joker. Perfect. Thanks a lot, Sebastian. Thank you very Catch much. You Thank you. Bye now. Bye. Bye. And just a reminder that I do need support to continue putting together all of this content and at patreon.com forward slash Ivor Cummins or for PayPal, please see the description below this video or the pinned comment and you can do a one-off or a monthly support. So I'd really appreciate that guys and keep me getting the science out there and countering perhaps the more biased corporate type science. Thank you.